0: DW, Living Planet, with Charlie Shield.
1: It's October, and that means we're edging ever closer to this year's Global Climate Conference, where countries from all over the world come together to hopefully hash out plans to tackle the climate crisis. You may have heard it referred to as COP, and this year's meeting is being called the African COP because it's being held in Egypt. So, as we look ahead to this meeting, we wanted to bring you some living planet stories from the past year that give us an insight into how the climate crisis is affecting people all over Africa. From how climate change is impacting people's mental health in South Africa, to one heartbreaking way it's changing women and girls' lives in Kenya to how the world's largest tropical peatlands are at risk of releasing billions of tonnes of carbon emissions into the atmosphere. Today, we share a snapshot of the climate crisis on the African continent. This is Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. African nations don't contribute much to global greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, the entire continent contributes just 7% of the world's total emissions. But that certainly doesn't mean that people's lives across the continent aren't deeply affected by the resulting rise in global temperatures. In this first story, we have an example of how climate change is already changing women and girls' lives in a pretty unexpected and really heartbreaking way. In Kenya, at the floor of the Great Rift Valley, the mostly nomadic Maasai people are largely dependent on livestock for their livelihoods. They have a closer relationship with the weather than most people – and so it's no surprise that global heating is having enormous ramifications on their daily movements and ability to feed themselves. But it's also having profound, devastating societal changes, including increased cases of female genital mutilation and early marriage for girls in their community. DW's Andrew Wasika brings us this story.
2: Here in Kajado County in Mosoni Village, sheep and cows are being herded in search of pasture. But it is evident that the drought has lasted for a long time. Looking around at what used to be grasslands, only shrubs and dry trees can be seen. The grazing lands where everyone used to bring their livestock have dried up. People here are experiencing the changing climate that has brought droughts and irregular rainfall. The dry spells are far-reaching and more frequent, and as an outcome, dead livestock can even be seen in some areas, having died due to lack of water and food. So
3: during drought, uh, for us Masai, cows are our wealth. So when there is drought like now, you find that most of us do not have our cows at home. We go with them looking for pastures.
2: 24-year-old Dorcas Kitetui wears a colorful traditional Maasai dress full of beads. She is currently preparing a damaged section of her house. She tells me that it was during such a dry season when she underwent female genital mutilation. She was 14 years old. When her family was affected by drought back in 2010, they lost a lot of livestock. The only way they could restock their wealth was by marrying off their daughter early. Thus, Dorcas was subjected to FGM and was married.
3: Back in 2011, I was circumcised. That was when I was 14. So marriage to us as Masais is very important because the father of the girl gets richer. They get cows and they get even to be friends with the other family.
2: A new report by the African Medical and Research Foundation AMREF here in Kajiado have linked increased economic stress due to climate change to the practice of female genital mutilation. The study shows that during the dry season, girls aged between 8 and 15 and women experience FGM at higher rates in order to be married off to compensate for their families' livestock losses. Denge Lugayo, a project manager at AMREF, talks about the effects of climate change and how it is leading to more of this gender-based violence. The
4: best option if you don't have the cash to buy the cow is to say, cut your girl, marry her off, get the cows. Well, whenever a girl is, 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 is married, they have to be circumcised. So if we have drought, then you expect this to be very high. It is very prevalent. Whenever we have drought, you see, you know, FGM trends also going
2: up. Climate change has eroded the Maasai social and economic fabric, and in particular, dwindling livestock has sunk these communities into abject poverty. In September... Kenya declared the drought that has ravaged 10 counties out of 42 in the country a national disaster. The government has warned that 2.1 million Kenyans are facing starvation. In the most affected areas, there has been no rainfall at all. But it is young girls in the Maasai community that suffer the most due to this changing climate. These changes have resulted in widening gender inequalities and further disempowerment of women and girls through the loss of education, the perpetuation of FGM, and increasing child marriages. A study by UNICEF shows that 47% of girls in Kajiado are married before reaching the age of 18. The Maasai employ these practices as an adaptive strategy to deal with the economic costs of climate change, but it comes at the cost of the women and girls' well-being. 26-year-old Grace Salonek was just 10 years old when she also underwent FGM.
3: It was arranged by my parents according to our culture. My parents are very organized when we are about to close the school. They are all arranging that. We are seven girls from my neighbours and my cousins. We are all brought together. So we undergo that FGM.
2: It was only after she grew up that Salonek understood that young girls from her community were being sold by their parents for livestock.
3: Climate change connects with FGM because
2: it bring up to promote
3: early marriages and FGM. Because... In our in our culture, our fathers used to like a lot of cattle, so some 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 cattle used to die because of no because of draft. So our fathers used to sell us to get like cows. You know. So they need those girls who are circumcised because they know you are treated to be a woman.
2: Salonek, who works now as a community health volunteer, has become a champion working as an activist against FGM. She educates and raises awareness about the harmful practice in her community. President Uhuru Kenyatta has underscored the negative impacts of climate change on Africa's peace and security. Kenyatta has urged African leaders, specifically and global leaders too, to no longer ignore the serious security challenges associated with climate change. Many of our countries are experiencing extreme weather patterns which manifest itself in form of more frequent and more intense droughts and floods and as a consequence... Our nations have witnessed more aggressive locust invasions with far-reaching consequences on communities, livelihoods, ecosystems, as well as to our infrastructure. These disruptive effects have significantly undermined the social-economic development agenda of many countries on the continent. Salonek tells me she wants the government to bring solutions that would help in the fight against FGM. She says the solutions should not only focus on FGM, but climate change as a whole, as it is among the root of the problems facing the Maasai community. There have been long-standing campaigns against FGM in Kenya, and although cases <laughs> declined in recent times, a growing number of women and girls are now at risk as the climate and socio-economic pressures heat up. For DW, I am Andrew Wasike in Kajiado, Kenya.
1: Listening to that last story, it's no wonder that threats to the environment are negatively impacting people's mental health. Last year, eco-anxiety even made it into the Oxford English Dictionary. Terms like this have made their way into people's vocabulary all over the world in recent years. But they seem to be used more commonly in the global north, where most people are worried about how future climate events could disrupt their lives. But what about people whose lives have already been radically disrupted? South Africa is another country already seeing the effects of climate change, from extreme heat to dangerous floods. Experts have warned that the country's economic hub, Hauteng Province, may run out of drinking water in the next two decades. And so it follows that the country is also feeling the effects of climate change. As these environmental problems take a psychological toll and hurt residents' mental health. Elna
5: Schutz has more on this story. The Vaal River system in South Africa is bordered by tall willow trees, green vegetation, and sloping hills in the background. It looks lush. But as I walk along the riverbank with Mdudutsi Chabalala, I notice trash, rushing water and the after-effects of flooding.
4: It's flooded because this flow is not normal to the river. It's normal maybe in this season because it's, it's rain season.
5: Mdudutsi Chabalala has lived nearby his whole life. He's been a climate justice activist for several years, raising awareness about increasing air and water pollution and extreme weather in the region. He now runs an environmental group focused on sustainable farming. In
4: 2019, we've experienced the extreme heat where crops couldn't grow. Even last year, some crops couldn't grow during the extreme heat. At least this year, we are seeing something different. Which is now extreme floods. So, also some crops wouldn't manage.
5: Farmers have lost crops to drought and floods, and only a few days before I visit, people who live on the flood lines lost houses and their lives were endangered. These are the visible effects of climate change, and they may not surprise you. But what about the lingering effects of climate change on people's mental health? Mdudutsi speaks about his own anger and the sadness he sees in the community.
4: We are carrying the anxiety that was left for us from the past. And what are we doing with it? We are passing it to the next generation. (laughs) Included is our own anxieties, our own irresponsibilities.
5: Mdudutsi's fears are shared by many. To understand this better, I sit down with clinical psychologist Dr. Garrett Barnwell... ...in his Johannesburg apartment. Okay, well you just, um... Garrett has done various research and work with communities around South Africa... ...on the mental health effects of climate change... ...and says a few things stick out.
6: So the first thing people experience in distress... ...and quite significant distress from the changes that they're seeing in the environment... ...from climate change and also the loss of biodiversity... Then also changes in the weather patterns. So we know from psychology that there's significant impacts of natural disasters, for instance, trauma, depression, uh, suicide that can take place after these events. Climate change is introducing more of these issues into places that didn't experience them as much.
5: Garrett says international research shows a fairly strong indicator that mental health conditions like depression and anxiety will increase alongside escalating climate effects like natural disasters. For instance, the American Psychological Association found that after Hurricane Katrina, people in the area were twice as likely to consider suicide and almost half developed disorders like anxiety and depression. The other main issue for people is thinking about the severity of the crisis that's coming, the anticipated experience of distress, as Garrett describes it.
6: This is what's often referred to as climate anxiety or climate trauma, is going through this process where you see the deterioration of the world.
5: Garrett says this is particularly relevant here in South Africa where people are seeing changes in the weather patterns firsthand and have experienced water shortages. There is a sense of dread about how this will continue to worsen in the future.
6: And then also being confronted with the intergenerationality of it. We are being affected in this generation, but those generations that will follow will be worse off if something's not done. Now I think that that's quite overwhelming for many people um, and a normal response to be overwhelmed.
5: That kind of distress can be seen in the farming community in the Val. Mamoswe Utswabi works with Mduduzi and farms indigenous trees and plants such as speckworm that are powerful carbon offsetters. She is fearful of the future. As a mother of two and also as a woman,
7: I feel frustrated and I feel angry and a bit worried about the future of our kids because I always ask myself that what is going to happen to my coming generations. I sometimes uh, regret why did I have uh, children because now I brought these children here and now with this climate change we see that is getting worse instead of maybe stopping or standing one, one place,
5: but it's getting worse, 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 worse. Garrett says these fears often aren't just about people facing more extreme weather events, but also about losing their sense of self.
6: Climate change, you can think about it as an identity threat, and any identity threats cause significance psychological distress because it's how well can i manage it how can i retain the sense of who i am and stuff like that in south africa i think what's also quite significant is that you have communities that have for generations had a link to land and these ways of knowing and being are essentially threatened
5: land also has a deeply spiritual and ancestral meaning for many Dora Marema is the Director of Sustainability at the South African Local Government Association. She tells me a personal story from a recent visit to her mother's house in a more rural part of the country.
7: My parents' yard, yeah, there's a grave that the previous occupants of that, of that yard, uh, the old man died and was buried there. And their family still come to perform rituals there.
5: The village also recently had floods that caused several houses to collapse and the water rushed into the graveyard.
7: And I was just sitting and thinking to myself, I don't know what these people are going to be doing because I think this, this will be washed away quite soon, where you probably may not be able to point where this grave is. I just feel like climate change is literally undermining all sorts of things, or the cultural, the spiritual, undermining the, the development that has gone into our country. It's undermining literally everything.
5: For Dora, this threat is real and practical. In her work with municipalities across the country, she helps local government climate-proof infrastructure, develop climate change response plans, and train people in climate change adaptation. She sees both the physical and emotional consequences of climate change.
7: I think from our, from our perspective... As local government, we realise that there is a lot that we have to do. I think for a very long time, we literally haven't envisaged the connections to be made between the impacts of climate change and, and community mental health.
5: This is starting to change, though. Dora and her team are working to raise awareness about resources when tragedy hits. She also sees an opportunity for those working in communities to be trained on how to offer mental health support. Garrett says this is particularly important in South Africa, where there is a mental health gap of 92%, meaning that the majority of people don't have access to mental health services.
6: So, what you're looking at really is most people aren't going to be able to access support in the traditional form of a sense in terms of mental health and So really what we need to be thinking about is how to prevent it rather than how to adapt to it. Because at the moment, uh, in terms of mental health at least, we'll never cover that gap. And I think that's quite a worrying reality, actually.
4: As you can see, the, the plants are quite
6: good. You see there's uh, olive trees.
5: Back in the val, Mdudutsi is focusing on making a orange. difference by farming sustainably an and teaching others to do the same.
4: I still feel there's a lot of hope. And one of the points I would emphasize is that the small practical solutions we have, let us try and amplify them, so much we have to attract young people, for instance so that we inspire that hope.
5: From South Africa, I'm Elna Schutz for DW. If you are
1: struggling with serious emotional strain or suicidal thoughts, don't hesitate to seek professional help. You can find more information on where to find help no matter where you live in the world at the website befrienders.org. That's B-E-F-R-I-E-N-D-E-R-S Moving north now, we head to the swampy forests of the Congo Basin, where the world's largest tropical peatlands sit – it's called the Covet-Central peatland complex, and it covers some 145,000 square kilometres. And it stores billions of tonnes of carbon. If disturbed, peatlands can quickly release the carbon they're holding onto, And that can have radical, far-reaching global impacts. The Democratic Republic of Congo's government announced that it wants to end a moratorium on logging that's helped protect the peatlands since 2002. And that means that millions of hectares of forests will be opened up to the logging industry. Scientists and environmentalists warn that cutting down huge numbers of trees in the area will release immense amounts of greenhouse gases. And this situation is further complicated by illegal logging, which, as it is, the government is already struggling to control. This report by Bettina Ruhl in the DRC is presented by Inika Mules.
8: In the middle of the rainforest in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a welcoming committee greets us in the village of Lokolama. A group of women dances around baskets filled with branches. The forest belongs to us, they sing. The people here in Lokolama are used to visitors. Their village has reached a certain level of fame after researchers found peat moss below the rainforest. Peat moss is dead fibrous material that forms when organic plant material decomposes in peat bogs. And the peat moss here reaches over an area larger than England and stores enormous amounts of CO2. Some parts of the peatlands in Congo's central basin have been accumulating and storing carbon since the end of the last ice age, more than 10,000 years ago.
4: What can be released into the atmosphere from this peat bog is equivalent to the CO2 emissions of the entire world in three years. So this peat bog helps to control climate change.
8: Sergei Nguato works for Greenpeace in the Congo. The environmental organisation sounded the alarm following the Congolese government's announcement in July last year that it wants to officially hand out logging permits for the rainforest. For almost two decades, a legal framework that was established in cooperation with the World Bank has prevented this from happening. Now, if new companies are allowed to come into the forest, this will create a chain reaction, says Joe Eisen. He heads the Rainforest Foundation in Great Britain. It's one of the few organisations worldwide that advocates directly for the rights of people living in the forest.
0: When you create logging concessions, you need roads to exploit the timber and those roads go into intact tropical forest areas and, and in the Congo, these, these are some of the last intact tropical forests on earth. And then that creates what is known as the cascade of deforestation. So then the logging company is followed by more illegal loggers, by illegal miners and poachers and so on and so forth. So we believe that any expansion of the logging industry in the DR Congo would be a disaster for the climate, for biodiversity and for the people that live and depend on those resources.
8: The rainforest in the Congo Basin is the second largest rainforest in the world. Only the Amazon is bigger. The diversity of birds here is unique. Even antelopes, forest elephants, gorillas, chimpanzees and many other animals that are on the brink of extinction live here. But their habitat is being increasingly destroyed. In 2019 alone, almost 500 hectares of forest were bulldozed. That's an area equivalent to around 600 football fields. Chinese companies were able to log entire regions. Flashback to two years ago at Lake Tumba in the rainforest. An excavator piles up dozens of logs. From here, they will be loaded onto ships and transported along the Congo River towards the capital. Asking questions is frowned upon here. The area belongs to two Chinese companies. Etienne Kasseraka is the head of an organisation advocating for the rainforest and the people in it. He is not allowed inside the area.
2: We are facing two companies here that we think are illegal. They were given contracts to cut wood despite violating the
4: moratorium.
8: Such violations aren't being punished though, he says. Likely because many are financially profiting from granting these licences.
2: This company is in fact a Chinese company, but it is under the protection of some high-ranking military officers. They are supporting the company even though they are breaking Congolese law.
8: Corruption is omnipresent in the Congo. The government has failed to enforce the moratorium, something that even Environment Minister Eva Bazeiba recently admitted.
7: 90% des exploitants forestiers of loggers work completely, or at least partially, illegally. And that means the Congo is paying the price. So,
8: often, the money lands in the pockets of private individuals instead of the hands of the government. The Congolese government's own failing to control logging in the rainforest has now led to their argument to abolish the moratorium altogether and to allow controlled logging – but experts like Joe Eisen doubt that this will work. There isn't even an official understanding of where wood is currently being logged. That's something that would need to be analysed first, he says.
0: But if it's done properly, and if it's done in conjunction with other forest reforms that are happening in the DR Congo, um, it would need to be uh, embedded in a system of participatory land use planning. So that would be you know, how to, to map um, the rights and claims of local and indigenous communities.
8: The village of Lokolama could be a pioneer on this front. With the help of Greenpeace, residents have already managed to strike a deal with the Congolese government. They are allowed to manage and preserve their own forest. A deal like this has theoretically been possible in the Congo since 2002. But until now, no village has managed to strike one. The contract guaranteeing land rights to locals now protects the forest area around Lokolama from encroachment. But the rainforest around the small village and its 500 residents is still under threat. And that's it for this week's Living Planet.
1: If you have questions or ideas for us as we work on new episodes and we work on our coverage of the Global Climate Conference in November, please send them our way at livingplanet@dw.com. at And if you'd like more Living Planet, check out our past episodes on whichever podcasting app you use. And while you're there, we'd be so grateful if you left us a rating and a review as well. Thanks to Simon Bergkran for twisting all the right nodules in the studio for this episode and to Sam Baker for her help with production. I'm Charlie Shield. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe. from the Don't Hold Back podcast. Join me and my guests as we tackle taboo topics, talk finance, and figure out relationships. We tell uplifting stories from overcoming depression to caring for oneself in this insanely complicated world. There's just one rule. Everyone brings a snack that means something extra special to them. Don't Hold Back is a monthly podcast from Daichavella, Chakaranda FM, and East Coast Radio. Find us wherever
3: you get your podcasts and on YouTube.